0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascareñas and joining me is Mary Ann Azevedo, senior tech reporter on Fintech. How's it going, Mary Ann? It's going great. I'm excited about today's show. And I heard you had no technical difficulties upon getting on today's show. So thank you (laughs) for being here. We are also joined by the amazing Becca Skutak. How's it going, Becca? Doing well. Doing well. How are you? I'm good. San Francisco has been the most beautiful it's been since the summer. So I can't complain. And there's no rain until today. So uh, my mood will be changing after our recording. But speaking of moods, and we are all in a especially great mood today because I think I see a returning member of the pod on my screen, Woo! Alex Wilhelm. Welcome back to Equity. Hi.
1: God, it feels good to be back. I have missed I have missed you all. I have missed recording. I have missed making terrible jokes. I've missed chatting <laughs> with our friends. I've had opinions about everything while I was on leave and I had no one to tell them. So I'm bottled up. Let's do it.
2: We're so happy
0: to have you back. Our listeners have missed you too. We got a bunch of emails and I'm sure people have reached out to you too, but everyone is so excited and we have to start with a just a baby update because that's our real deal of the week this week. So how is Ada <laughs> doing? How are you? What is it like to be a full father?
1: I mean, look, I'm a selfish introvert, which is a fancy way of saying that I'm a writer. And so <laughs> when you suddenly have a human who is entirely dependent on your care to survive, you have to back burner like your hobbies, interests, self-care, exercise, eating plans. And so you end up with a very different life. And I think it's going to be net positive for my overall like psyche. But right now I'm kind of like, I'm not playing enough video games or Pelotoning because baby wanted to vomit on me, you know? So <laughs> it's it's good, but a struggle. So shout out Marianne for having several children.
0: <laughs> I can see Marianne's face just be like, mm-hmm. just wait. Just you wait. It's a, it's a lot. <laughs>
2: I'm going to stay quiet for now. But other than to say, these are some beautiful, innocent years that you should absolutely enjoy despite The sleepless ache nights and vomit and all that.
1: Can I say one more thing before we do the actual news? Please. All right. So, before you have children, people who have children will come up to you and be like, oh my gosh, you should have kids. It's so fulfilling. We love it. And then the moment you're pregnant, they tell you like, oh my gosh, you're doomed. Your life's over. Welcome to hell. And then there's a third chapter that Marianne just did, which is after you've gone through the opening hellacious weeks of not sleeping and learning how to swaddle and change diapers, they go, oh, just wait, it gets worse. And so I'm just saying, I think parents should change the way they advertise because I don't think this is not helping our birth rate as a nation.
2: I mean, just it's just different, right? It's a Different kind of challenge you face when they get older. So, but really beautiful, innocent time, enjoy and keep sending us pictures as much as you can.
1: Yeah. Well, look, now that I know how much babies cost, I'm going to be working until I die. So I'll be on <laughs> equity to tell everyone how it goes.
0: I love that Beck and I are just like slowly nodding, being like, <laughs> I mean, my dog is hard enough to take care of. I can't even imagine. I think I cat sat once and that's, I'm good on, on all of the above for now. Alex, it's so good to have you back on the show. We are going to get into some of your first words of the year, but let's run through the high level of the show. We're going to talk about three deals, as always, starting with an Indian meat startup, then getting into a WeWork to tiny home startup and ending with a Klarna update that was super surprising to me and Marianne, the writer of the piece. Then our three themes are everything from unicorns to layoff bright spots to accountability. So very equity-esque episode. Becca, let's start with you and the deal that you chose this week. Yeah. So the deal that stood out to me this week is for a
3: company called Fresh to Home. It's an Indian meat startup. That raised 104 million in funding, including from one of Amazon's Indian focused venture funds. It appears to be the largest check that the firm has written thus far. This stood out for a few reasons, this shouldn't be the main one, but it was. The term "proficorn" was used in this story, which <laughs> kind of I'm like, do we need more terms? Like, don't we have enough <laughs> words already? But "proficorn," according to this startup that is describing itself as such, is an operationally profitable company that is a sunicorn yet to Ugh. be a unicorn. I'd love to know everyone's thoughts on that because I am just really tired of people making up words. The startup names people come up with are hard enough. <laughs>
2: I would say this is a probably very rare type of startup, honestly. Maybe the real unicorn, you could say.
1: No, no. <laughs> Sunicorn was bad. Unicorn was bad. Let's not make tertiary variations thereof. This is not an improvement. This is a downgrade.
0: You know, you're in a downturn when something like Proficorn is like used as marketing. <laughs> I will say it's better than like, I think Camel was another one that we've seen out there. Horse. Horse. Horse as well. Dragon. Oh, Dragon. Yeah. (laughs) They're all so bad. (laughs) The the company, though, it started in 2015. So it's not a new buzzy startup necessarily. And I think what we were talking about in the prep meeting, Becca, was like kind of being surprised that it's a tech company, too, because it just seems like that's selling meat online. Yeah, it sounds like you can get the meat you order pretty
3: quickly, which is probably pretty interesting compared to some of the other startups that are similarly flavored in this space, like ButcherBox and like stuff like that, where you kind of have to order far in advance. So there's definitely some interesting, like new and innovative things about this. But I think what's also interesting is I remember when we were talking about this yesterday, too, because we've talked about so many like lab grown meat, plant based meat that it was like, okay, so which one? is this one? And it's like, no, this is just regular plain old meat. Kind of interesting to hear about 104 million going to just, you know, chicken and fish.
2: Didn't the article say that you could like order a shipment in one day from India to Dubai? Yeah. That's that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. The flight's like three hours. Low carbon
1: footprint. This is not. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a hypothesis here. So I, I was perplexed, as, as we all were, at this tech-enabled business raising you know, a nine-figure check from an Amazon subsidiary fund I hadn't even heard of. And I was just trying to parse, why the hell would they write this much of a check? And, and then I just realized they're just investing in Indian logistics, I think. That's mm-hmm. just what this is. This isn't like they think this company is going to generate a lot of like positive return for the company. I think they want access to their supply chain. Huh. So that way, they can better serve the Indian market. Brilliant. So it's more strategic than venture, I feel.
3: Plus, in their defense... The article says that this company has been growing pretty quickly. So it definitely, while it sounds kind of odd to us over here, it seems like from the consumer side, there's definitely a need for something like this. So kind of a weird deal, but it seems like there's a need and we had a lot to talk about it. So interesting, at least.
0: Yeah, it actually snuck in. I think you're spot on though. I think like I saw like the phrase rigorous processing plant and fast supply chain network. Those are like Amazon's two favorite things. So I totally see what you're saying.
1: Throw in a robot and they will take it public. Let's move on, though. Natasha, you had a story here that involves uh, two of my favorite things, WeWork and Tiny (laughs) Helms. So hit me with it.
0: So at every point during an interview I have with a founder or VC, like if it's good, there's like one point where like I kind of actually start paying attention and my eyes widen. And it's probably when the founder of today's startup said that if WeWork's IPO didn't fail, he probably wouldn't be building a prop tech business right now. He basically left his position at WeWork as the director of product management and strategic partnerships in January um, of of the IPO, and that kind of movement made him reconsider where he's at in life and. He decided to finally double down on a side hustle he had been building for a long time, which was building construction specs on small homes, whether it was a little cabin or a tiny home. And fast forward to July 2020, he launched the startup. And then this week, I wrote about the company officially raising $3 million in venture capital in, in its first official round. And it was a prop tech round, Marianne, which I made you read the piece like a multiple times because I never write about it. But it similarly snuck in because of the WeWork angle and just hearing someone kind of double down on a side hustle. Those are two things I always kind of pay attention
2: to. I love it when you decide to cover tech, Natasha, and you're much better at it than you think or realize. Oh, thank you. I I, th- I thought it was very interesting, the company. And also interesting is just how many of these startups seem to have emerged in the past couple of years. It's like, I feel like every two or three months we're writing about another PropTech that's doing something similar. We're coming up, trying to help people come up with designs or plans for a home. Now, in this case, they're not in the construction part of it, right? Right. You've covered a lot of their very well capitalized competitors. Some names that
0: people may already know, such as Welcome Homes, Atmos, and Homebound. They've all raised tons of you know, millions of millions of venture capital. Den is doing something different where they're focusing more on like the digital approach. Uh, So think like they help you build a more refined design process for constructing those homes. And it kind of holds the customer's hand through all stages of home building is the way they describe it. So like they help you find a design, they help you pick the right land, more project managing than construction. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it's like very downturn business friendly, right? Like if you were an investor, Alex, and you had to bet on a company constructing homes or a company that gets to just be asset light and just build the designs, I'm guessing you'd pick the asset light business, unless you're more risky than I think.
1: No, I'm not. And (laughs) uh, hell yes to that. Asset light's great. This sounds and smells like software to me, which means that we understand how it works. We understand the gross margins. And I think at the very end of, of the article you wrote, the company was like, yeah, we may get into procurement l- later on. We're trying to focus right now. Great. You know, what's low margin? Uh, bricks, lumber, you know, <laughs> right. you know, time margin software. So hell yeah to this. And I love tiny homes. I've seen every episode of tiny house nation. I've watched seasons of main cabin masters. I'm a, I, I love this. Shit. Even though I would never live in a tiny home. <laughs> I am a fan of the genre.
3: I think something that was really interesting about this one too, is that It seems like you can kind of jump in here at any point of the process, which I think for a lot of these kind of startups I haven't seen before, like sort of almost like if you're doing it yourself and you get stuck, you can you don't have to start over using this type of a service, which I think is really interesting because it really broadens who can use it because it's going to end up attracting people who didn't want to use something like this or sort of like tried a different path and have now found their way here, which I don't know. I feel like you don't come across startups with that kind of an approach very often. So I found that really interesting.
1: Does this fit into the ADU market, you know, people building smaller structures and kind of their their backyards and adding more space? Because if we're doing tiny stuff, that seems to be like an easy kind of guess.
0: I honestly don't know. Like and and I feel like this company probably could expand to that pretty easily because it's not doing the actual building of the houses. I'm imagining it's just kind of a design decision at that point. But Marianne, you probably know more about that world.
2: Yeah, I feel like the founder would have been specific about it if ADUs were a big part of their business right now. So it sounds like maybe that's that's not. But to your point, like it's something that can be applied to it very easily. And certainly there's an increasing demand for ADUs as well.
0: Let's keep on the increasing demand train and talk about our final round (laughs) of the week. Marianne, you surprised me so much with this Klarna headline. So tell us
2: what you wrote. Yeah. So I got to talk to the CEO of Klarna, Sebastian, and I won't butcher his last name, but he gave us an exclusive interview about their US results and... Becca, I know you talked to him very recently on our sister podcast found, and he was actually quite forthcoming, I thought more so than I would have expected from a CEO of such a a large company. And he shared a lot of things that that may have surprised people. The US is now Klarna's largest market by revenue, considering that it's a Swedish company and operating Widely across Europe, I thought that was that was pretty fascinating. Uh, He shared a few other things. He was very emphatic about differentiating Klarna from a firm, which, you know, the two were pretty broadly known as rivals. And he he was very specific to say, hey, a firm, they let people pay over like two years, we do much shorter term installment type, our average Purchases around around $100. So that was the first time I'd ever heard a CEO of one of these buy now, pay later players actually address their competitiveness in that way. And then last thing I'll say, and Beck has brought this up as well, he emphasized that buy now, pay later is not the only thing they do. And in fact, marketing side of their business is the fastest growing. So lots of interesting details that came out during this conversation.
3: And I just have to agree with you there that Sebastian is just a great... CEO to talk to, very transparent, very easy to kind of ask the tough questions. So definitely a treat to kind of when you're looking to get like real information on how something's going. But I think it's so interesting. And we talked about this a bit on the podcast last week, just the marketing part of it, maybe because they know BNPL is like sort of falling out of favor with some people or like regulation might be coming down the road. It's probably smart that they don't make it their main selling point here in the US. But I definitely was surprised to see how fast they grew here since the company's been around for more than 15 years and they just launched in the US for it to become their largest market that quick is super interesting.
1: Could someone catch me up on the marketing revenue side of the Klarna story? Because I feel like I have been bucketing them too much in the buy now, pay later category. So I need to catch up.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, they're actually, they offer retailers things like ad-sponsored content in their app. They offer virtual shopping, shoppable videos. They've partnered with like what they say uh, more than a hundred of the top US retailers in an effort to like reach new audiences. One thing that Klarna does that I didn't know is they give people who use their app away, like say So you would like to use Klarna at a particular retailer, but that retailer is not officially partnered with Klarna. Well, that's okay. They've built it into their browser that you can still use Klarna at that merchant, even though they're not official partners. Klarna then in turn, like captures all that data and they can go back to that retailer and say, look, we're not even partners and look how many purchases we've helped facilitate at your business and then boom, new business. So I I think Klarna's really done a lot more to broaden its offering than a lot of people realize.
1: I think my my blind spot here is that I don't do enough online shopping. And I just realized that Klarna kind of names their app, how to do shopping and payments in one place. And I only knew about half of that because I haven't ever used it. Apparently I need to become a better consumer.
2: I mean, yeah, they do things like, you know, they'll have the digital, the receipts in the app. They'll, you know, help you track like how much you've spent where. I mean, it's pretty fascinating, honestly. And so, yeah, this was this was an enlightening Interview, and I'll have a little bit more on Klarna to come next week, but Ooh. I won't get into that. Am
0: I the only one who hasn't interviewed
2: the CEO? Alex, have you?
0: No. Okay. Well, <laughs> that makes me feel better.
1: I'm surprised they actually talked to us because I've written some less than enthusiastic things about them. So I'm really, thanks, Klarna. <laughs>
0: Let me ask you one last question, Alex, not to overindex on the fact that you haven't been online as much this year yet, but now that it's been two months into the year, are you surprised to see Klarna try and scoot away from its BNPL reputation and just not try and be close to a firm? Or does this feel like it makes sense for 2023?
1: Oh, it makes, it makes such good sense. Becca, if you had a share price of, let's just say $165 a share, and then it fell down to 13, would you want that company to be your comp or would you like to have a different comp?
3: a different comp there you go
0: ouch
1: (laughs) (laughs) sorry i'm just i I had a firm stock price pulled up because i was looking at it while we were talking about it and it's brutal in a firm's credit though, they bottomed out at 862 a share so they're up quite a lot from that all-time low oh shout out a firm
3: also just one thing that i picked up from the call we had with sebastian for found is that there are like other players in the spaces they operate in that are more successful in the u.s and I think that's why we associate them mainly with being a BNPL, Because in some countries they are like the main like payment, digital payments and stuff, too, which like we would never think of them as that here. So I think like that also probably leans into the conversation a little bit, too. Yeah.
2: In Europe, a lot of people use their credit and debit cards. So and they launched a card even here in the U.S. last summer. So people could use it to pay for installments, a physical card. So, yeah, I mean, is just it's just doing a lot, doing a lot. It's not the
0: only company I've heard recently that has European roots, but is winning in the US. Like, And I still have to talk to a company who says that they're doing this. But it's kind of surprising to me because I think often we associate Europe and fintech as being much more ahead and mature than the US. So it kind of surprises me when the business changes. And even probably while Klarna is happy about this news, I'm guessing this probably takes them and is forcing them to like restructure their business a little bit or change up their hiring focus. Because... Because yeah, I mean, I don't know. It comes as a huge surprise to see these companies that are based elsewhere win here.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and to be clear, Klarna did have a little bit of a rough year last year. What valuation dropped from about forty-five billion to I think it was under seven? It dropped by like eighty-five percent. Conducted a couple of rounds of layoffs. Still, they seem optimistic. Uh, we'll be paying attention. To see how they they do the rest of this year.
1: Can I speak on a factoid? Please, I just did some math for us. So we were talking about EU versus the US. And one thing I think people forget in Europe is that like Wyoming is as big as many countries, albeit with no one there. So I was trying to figure out what the fraction is. And if the stats I pulled are correct, uh, the U.S. is around 75% of the population of the EU. Wow. So when you think about the two areas, that's a useful kind of rule of thumb to compare them. And uh, the U.S. often has higher per capita GDP in some of those countries. So it makes a lot of sense to come over here and let Americans run up even more credit card debt. All right, back to you.
0: There we go. I missed the numbers. We had a lot of nuance, but we missed the numbers behind the headlines. Alex, let's stay in your world and talk about some IPO updates. Pinch me. I can't believe we're talking about IPOs. What's happening this year? Who's thinking about it? I'm
1: going to drag Becca into this with me. (laughs) Becca, the Reddit IPO, I feel like it's been discussed as a possibility since like the Neolithic era. Do you put any real stock in the reports that they're kind of targeting a second half of the year 2023 IPO?
3: I don't know. It's tough because it seems... And this is no offense to Reddit. I'm sure the company is doing fine. For them to be like the first startup to go public feels very random because they have been private for so long and they have always been so like resistant to talking about going public, resistant to sort of making those plans, whereas other companies wanted to go public either in 2022, 2023, very public about it and then couldn't. So for them to be like one of the big names we're already talking about about going public is definitely interesting and i know they initially filed back in december 2021 but coming yeah. after so many years of like dodging the conversation it seems yeah it just seems kind of random And I also know I've been chatting with a lot of secondaries folks so far this year. And something that's come up is that when companies either I think we talked about this last week, but when companies either publicly disclose like a lower valuation, secondary activity starts to swarm because people can get in and build their stake and all that kind of stuff. So secondary activity is a pretty good indicator of how the market is like actually feeling about these different companies. And so something interesting more on this next week. But since this news has come out, Reddit's potentially thinking of going public there really hasn't been much secondary activity, which is generally not a good sign. So more on that to come. But this will be a very interesting one to see how this plays
1: out. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if you had like, you know, pointed a gun at me and said, who's going to go public first? I mean, Instacart and Stripe would have been Thank like you. top, right?
0: But it gets even worse because there's a scooter in the conversation. What are, What's happening? Yeah. <laughs> Someone explain yeah. this to me.
1: I just hope Bird doesn't send me another email. The Bird and Lion... Press crew (laughs) is spicy. Anyways, Lime is profitable to some degree. And testing the waters for an IPO, according to TechWinch.com, we didn't have revenue and growth numbers. We only had some uh, kind of profitability figures in the mostly single-digit millions. But what matters is after watching Bird immolate in the public markets after going public via a SPAC, Lime appears from the very tailored numbers they shared to be in better shape. I don't know, Marianne. When was the last time you were on a scooter?
2: Forget it. My ass is not getting on a scooter. It's not going to happen. But my son has been on one not that long ago, um, and I think it was Lime. I was surprised, like, by how well Lime seems to be doing. I mean, the the strategy of like building their own scooters seems to be paying off for them. Like they're getting better quality scooters i guess because they're actually investing in it and which is i think the opposite of what bird has done i don't know i mean they're they're doing pretty good they play the long
0: game in a way like they just didn't i mean Mm -hmm. they didn't give up question mark somehow
2: i
1: I don't want bird to email me bird also made its own scooters there you go bird
2: (laughs) but did they stop doing that like or no i'm
1: not familiar with their current manufacturing plans but i am familiar with the fact that they're less than a dollar per share and at risk of being delisted
0: Okay. Also, Alex, like the delisting fact, I learned about that this year. I didn't know. I mean, I feel that's just, that's so like mean. It's like. (laughs) You suck. I'm going to delist you. (laughs) It's just funny. Look, These are not, these are like
1: social clubs, right? For, for functional companies. You can't, if I go to the private club, you know, in like the East coast sense, wearing flip-flops and a Slayer cutoff, I'm not getting in, you know, and you can't be a penny stock and be on the NASDAQ or the NICE. And penny stock isn't just a joke. It's actually just a thing you shouldn't be.
2: I missed your analogies, Alex, like a lot. (laughs) Let's pivot to, I guess, your
0: first piece of the year, Alex. First tech crunch piece of the year. You've been busy on Substack. You, dug into Coinbase's quote, better than expected Q4 results with Jackie. What's happening there? Are they a penny stock as well? No, are they at risk of becoming one?
1: I'm not going to say that because then they'll email me. Don't email me. (laughs) I'm going to be super brief here because I know we have some stuff to get to. We spent a lot of time on the numbers today. Coinbase's Q4 results were, were poor in a historical sense compared to what they did in kind of the year ago period. They were a little bit better than the street expected. The company, even after a lot of kind of cost cutting work remains very unprofitable and the crypto winter persists. The thing that I'll throw in there, and this is what I'm going to lasso Marianne into writing with me, hopefully in the next couple of days, is that thanks to a rising interest rate environment, while that has depressed some speculative trading activities, It has made sitting on cash a lot more lucrative. And so if you look at interest incomes at companies like Coinbase and Robinhood, they've gotten a dramatic kind of shot in the arm from rates going up. And so they're actually kind of being saved by the thing they're being whacked by. So there's kind of an irony there, but uh, interest-based incomes were key for Coinbase to best expectations. And you know we'll have to see what happens with the business as the year goes on, but it was better than expected, even if it was still rough. It's
0: fascinating. I think, yeah, when we think about a crypto company at all having earnings reports, I feel like the bar was on the floor in terms of what I was expecting to hear. They struggled so much. They're struggling so much. So I agree with the headline. I think the point you made about diversifying their revenue feels very like, I don't know, it feels hard to do when you're that size. So at the risk of being too nice, I'm very impressed by them actually being able to diversify their revenue. That feels like something people do before they go public rather than while they are public.
1: Well, it's easier to diversify your revenue when your main revenue strategy kind of dries up. It makes everything else look a little bit bigger. But speaking of things getting smaller, so are many staff sizes, Natasha, and we're hearing that tech layoffs are leading to a new era of scrappy and humble founders.
0: Yes. uh, Yes. I had so much fun writing this piece because I have been. The gray cloud over 2022 of reporting on layoffs every damn day, but we're finally seeing some of the people who've been laid off starting companies. This all happened. The story happened because one VC firm day one, they started an accelerator where they were going to back founders who were laid off and they were going to write I think around 20 checks uh, and and invest 100,000 to start a company. And they got back to me and they said, we announced this and they got over 1,200 applications for their accelerator. And they ended up having over half the companies that applied had already been incorporated and a quarter that applied were built by women founders. We got some other data that was also really cool, uh, especially looking around which startups that had layoffs are most likely to spin out founders. Number one was Meta, formerly known as Facebook. It cut around 11,000 jobs late last year. Then it was followed by Twitter, Amazon, Lyft, Stripe, and Salesforce in terms of companies that are most likely to um, spin out founders. So I was just excited to finally have data. It's not a perfect data set by any means, but we're starting to see some sort of reaction entrepreneurially to these massive layoffs, which is just you know we know this happens during downturns. They're a great time for companies to be born, as as the locals like to say.
2: You did a great job with this story, Natasha. Like really interesting to hear all the different perspectives from these folks who are laid off and like, okay, we're going to take this opportunity, make lemonade out of lemons and try to start something new. So it was cool to read about all the different experiences and and plans from these laid off workers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was a better.com alum in there and there was also a digital health company alum there whose name I'm forgetting now, but they learned the lessons as employees of these unicorns on what not to do in a way. So I'm hopeful. And I think that's where the humbled word comes from. It's like a little bit more realistic, both by a forcing function and actual experience. So that to me is exciting. But you know, listen, there has been, I think around 260,000 people have been laid off from the tech world over the past over a year. So we know that not a vast majority are not starting companies just to give a little balance. It's not like everyone's jumping into more risk after losing their job.
1: Did anyone else expect kind of a higher yield in applications to investments here? Like we've known about day one for a while. We've talked about Masha here and there on the show. 1,200 applications, seven investments, given that they're getting so many folks from companies we know and either respect or have respected. It just seems like maybe you thought the apps would be stronger.
0: Yeah. They set out to invest 20. They only picked seven. And when I asked, they were like, we're not going to lower our bar to quality. So I think reading between the lines there, it means that just because you're laid off, you're not going to get a, you know, a pity check or even, you know, any extra sort of Kindness, which I respect. I mean, they're not in the charity business. So I, I understand.
2: Yeah. I think she said that they only invested in the companies that the whole team unanimously voted yes on.
3: No. And this is something I actually, as much as I think this program is a cool idea, I did sort of write that it was a little toned deaf in a story a few months ago. And part of this kind of leans into that. They're only picking seven. One of the things I thought was interesting is that it's, such a short time frame that they were picking the companies. So it's like if they wanted someone to be laid off or if they wanted to invest in someone who recently laid off and then they wanted a company that was going to hit their quality bar, it's like, That's a very small amount of time for these people to like rebound, come up with the idea, incorporate and make a company worth investing in. And that was one of the things that I was a little like annoyed about at the time thinking is like, well, why won't you just put that money towards companies I've been struggling to raise this year in general? So, yeah, the fact that they ended up investing in seven is both not surprising, but kind of leans further into like one of the original like red flags I kind of had about this idea.
1: Overwhelmingly,
3: it's a good idea, but... Not perfect,
1: but Becca, going back to the Den story from earlier, he was doing a we work, you know, senior job and tinkering on the side. Surely, a lot of these people at Meta, Twitter, had some time, you know, a couple hours here and there to to fuss about with something else. You know, it isn't like they got laid off and were like blank sheet of paper. Now
3: what? I definitely agree with that because I do. There's been so much research about this recently or over the last few years that you don't need to like quit your job and focus on the startup full time. Like that is no indicator that it will be successful over someone who does work on a part time for a while. Yeah. Um, So no shame to the part time founders by any means. That generally is kind of what ends up producing the better companies.
0: One name that comes to mind as you're saying that is this accelerator I'm kind of obsessed with. It's called Z Fellows. And it's started by Corey Levy. And it gives you $10,000 to take PTO for a week from your day job and try and start a company I won't get into all the details because I'm not completely sure off the top of my head. But at the end of the week, you can either you know, leave and there's no love lost or commit to the company full time. So I love the idea of not having to quit your job or lose your job to begin from day one? Like, are there ways we can like start that earlier? Mm. And I think everyone in tech in some degree has their head outside their entire job, at least in this environment.
1: Do we know if day one ventures are fans of Amazon? Because if they are, their slogan could be, it's
0: always day one at day one. I'm sure they're listening and they're gonna definitely take that into account.
1: <laughs> if, you, if you don't get that joke, congrats on having a life.
0: Let's end with Becca, your piece. You wrote about accountability, which I feel like fits really well into our current discussion.
3: Yeah. So, something that I've been, and this is not necessarily a new idea that I've been kind of toying around with, but something that I've kind of tracked, especially ramping up after all the crypto stuff with SBF and all the stuff that happened with FTX, is that there's a lot that VCs let companies get away with. And I'm sure there's so much that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. And something I found interesting, and it's come up as a common thread in past stories I've done covering sort of like diversity at both startups and the venture funds that back them, is this whole concept of problems get really hard to solve when they get large, And sure, some problems companies have will not appear until they're a large company or they've scaled to some degree, but the majority of them are pretty present at the beginning. If you've got a problematic leadership team that generally doesn't not show itself until the Series D round or later, if you've got bad bookkeeping, you've got some of this other stuff going on that generally can be fixed. Obviously, some problems with startups cannot be fixed. If you have a business model that won't work, that's a little harder. If you have a founder or CEO allegedly committing a crime or doing something like sexual harassment or assault, obviously those are things that are very different. But a lot of things can be fixed if caught early. And I kind of was thinking about this idea where if VCs held their early stage startups more accountable and the companies built better because of it, it's kind of a better outcome for both the company and the VCs down the line. So I don't know. I get the argument. Obviously, a lot of early stage funds invest in a ton of companies. I get the whole time commitment. Maybe you don't have time to sort of, you know, nurture every single startup like the others. But I don't know. It just feels like something that's kind of a win-win.
1: You had an example in the story that came from Richard Kirby. Of Equal Ventures, who had a particular comment on if you don't do something early, bad things happen. What was that riff?
3: Yeah. So, this is going to be funny because I was working at a different publication at the time. This was literally, I think, three years ago. If Richard Kirby is listening to this, he's going to be like, I don't even remember that conversation. But it was three years ago talking about how venture firms could fix their diversity problems if they had been quite established. So, say you had a very small percentage of investors from, say, underrepresented or diverse backgrounds. Could you retrofit the fund or could you hire essentially to fix the issue? And he said, especially when it comes to diversity, if you don't think about it from the beginning, you're f***ed. And I think that can be applied to a lot of these things because issues are just much harder to solve when they're bigger. More people are involved. More players are affected. And I just I that quote immediately came back to me as I was kind of diving into this issue.
0: Those are the best 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 quotes and I feel like as you're saying this too I'm like okay early stage investors hard job don't get me wrong but all they do is flex we don't have any data to go off of we are investing based on the founder if you're gonna do that and you're not focused on numbers then at least be focused on how the company is being structured and built from day one so I feel like I don't know something around the idea of like early stage investors having less to do around finances and more to do around Structuring to me feels like it should be more normalized plus
3: something that came out in the story I wrote just a few days before this about sort of like how to deal with a, a problematic leadership team Once you've already invested and maybe didn't realize that is one of the people I spoke to angela lee a professor at columbia business school is she said that things do not explode overnight. Like FTX's problems did not start that day. Like things start long before that. Things fester, things grow. And she was saying that this is why you need to be checking in with founders, even for just like a five, 10, 15 minute call a quarter. Just asking them questions about stuff beyond the numbers, beyond the business. You don't need the numbers to find a lot of these problems, which I think is definitely something that leads to your argument, Natasha, that early stage founders are like, investors are like, oh, well, I don't have the data. I can't blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, are you talking to the founders about what's happening at the company on an often enough basis? Because she was saying stuff doesn't explode overnight. The cracks always show before. And you can catch them generally.
2: I think that it's clear that especially in like 2021, a lot of VC firms were we're not really so concerned with that sort of thing they were more they were thinking let's just back what we think is going to be the next best thing and they put blinders on to be honest i think a lot of them did and they they saw what they wanted to and they tried to block out some other things cuz i'm weekly hearing stories emerge about different companies and leadership that that would have you horrified and it's like If you've invested millions into a company, how could you like have not an inkling that some of this stuff is going on? Right. it goes back to like startups not having boards that comprised of people outside of their own executive team. Right. Right. The veil has
0: been lifted on a lot of this stuff. So some of it feels obvious. Now, but at the same time, I think it's so helpful to bring awareness. So I'm really glad you wrote that piece, Becca. Yeah. Cause even in like the
3: time defense argument, like you were saying, Marianne, people were just going so fast in 2021, investing in all these companies and kind of cutting hard and loose on the, the data and the due diligence. But you're gonna have to spend a lot more time later on if the company ends up having these issues than they would if they were smaller. And in the case of like FCX, you didn't spend enough time on it. And now you lost your entire investment. You got a big egg on your face. You have to go back to your LPs and tell them that you invested in a company that didn't have a balance sheet, didn't have an independent board, and they're going to trust you again with their money. It's like, I don't know. The time kind of seems worth it when you think about it.
1: It's worse than that. You have to delete the hagiography hey, you wrote about the founder on your site oh, that made God. you look silly. Look, <laughs> it, it's just like a back to fundamentals, like ethics matters, integrity matters, governance matters. Like, my God, go to like one Boy Scout meeting. Right. Write down what you hear and then go do that and you'll save half your money in venture.
0: (laughs) Mike, drop. Thank you all. That's the show. I mean, so much to get through. It is so good to have you back, Alex. Becca, thank you so much for standing in while Alex has been out, but we're always going to have you on the show as well. So no goodbyes as always, use code equity wherever you can specifically use it for 40% off founder and investor passes at TechCrunch early stage in Boston in April. And you can use it for half off annual passes of TechCrunch Plus. It makes us look great. Alex, you're back on the Monday beat starting next week. So everyone gets to start their week with you again. How are we feeling about that?
1: I think I'll be over this head cold by then. (laughs) So I'll be able to hear and uh, I won't sound so terrible. But on the early stage front, come hang out with us. There's Boston. So there'll be bad drivers and mediocre coffee and sports teams that the Eagles (laughs) like. To beat it's oh fun.
0: no don't isolate our Boston oh. audience but speaking of events I'm just gonna do a quick plug I'm gonna be at Upfront Summit next week in LA and for the VCs listening whoever's there hit me up we should totally grab coffee or just say hello in between all the panels but other than that goodbye everyone it's been so fun we will chat on Monday bye Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skutak, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week.